So you're dead, now what? <laughs> kind of a fun way to uh, shift from ordination into kind of the message we're, uh, series we've been in. Uh, before doing that, I just want to make a couple comments. Um, first of all, again, thank you, Bob, uh, for being here. Deeply appreciate your leadership and ministry uh, to us over the years. And Jonathan, uh, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for your support of Chris and I. We pray for you guys. I know we're in different churches, not far away. Uh, but again, we don't compete. We're on the same team. Thank you for what you do. Deeply appreciate your support of both Chris and I. Um, young and foolish at times, trying to figure things out. And it's, I love the wisdom that you've provided us over the years. And Chris, I just want to say to you, uh, in front of everyone who gives me the opportunity to do this, we don't get to talk about this a lot. Um, I thank you so much for your friendship. Uh, I'll just share with everyone. Chris and I met uh, for the first time really at any level was it lit its family cupboard, what, seven years ago now. And we sat down to have uh, breakfast and he was getting to know me, a potential candidate to come here. And I look at this guy across the table from him, like, we're not that far apart in age. Um, I'm trying to figure out him. And I ask him the question, why don't you want this role? Do you remember? I don't know if you remember me asking that question. And we had a lot of discussion. Here's why I asked the question. And Chris, I can't thank you enough for this. I love the team that God's brought together here at Bethany. Chris, the rest of the staff team, but our relationship. So often I find in church ministry, ego and grandstanding and competitive spirits can begin to shift in. Chris and I are very different people. You know that. (laughs) You see it. We live it out. Uh, Very different people, gifted very differently, but called to this thing called pastoring. And what a joy it is to serve with a friend, uh, not just a coworker, but a friend. Um, To serve with someone who sees a bigger picture, who we collectively work together for something far bigger than Bethany. Um, And we've both agreed. Chris and I have both said, hey, if it ever becomes about us or if we've ever capped the ministry, we hope that we can step down and step away. So, Chris, I love you. Thanks for the friendship. Thanks for for serving here. Uh, Well, that's it, too. You did a great job last week. Uh, Chris kicked this series off last week, so you're dead. Now what? And God kind of had that started. I was away the week before in my spiritual retreat, something I do every year. I go away for a whole week, shut everything down, turn it all off, read, pray, think, reflect, um, just listen to what God asked for me, kind of recenter, refresh. I was doing that, so Chris opened the series up, talked about death. I came back, caught that series, caught his message online, again, God... Um, really, God used that. So, you know, Chris, thank you for that. Uh, now, this morning, uh, we kick into this, um, to hell. I mean, of all things to talk about in Ordination Week. And Chris, we tried to find someone else to speak this morning. Um, and a lot of times in Ordination, you'd you ask someone who really has meant a lot to Chris or another pastor. So I asked Chris that, and he said, well, how about Matt Chandler? Now, those of you who know Matt Chandler... A little busy this morning, uh, couldn't quite uh, pull him in here, so uh, you've got me, Chris, to talk about hell, and I will do my best to fill those big shoes of Matt Chandler. Final thing I'll say before jumping in, just want to mention too, Chris is going to be away uh, this week. He leaves with Gerald Souter, also a part of the church here, um, Cliff Snader, who was the elder, if you don't know Cliff, was the elder over kind of this side, um, and uh, himself are going to Romania uh, this coming Thursday, and we'll be away in a mission trip, so we're continuing to pray for him uh, uh, for that. Now, with that said, subject of hell, here we go. Let's roll our sleeves up. Uh, I'll throw this precursor out. The last time I had a message solely focused on this subject was about 11 years ago. It was in an auditorium, large auditorium with a lot of teenagers, and on that evening, uh, with an illustration that I thought would be really cool and set the tone and really kind of capture the kids' attention, I almost, no exaggeration, almost burnt the church down. 
Now, the second thing I did on that night is we had to call 911, not once, but twice for two different people that ended up in the hospital that evening. Now, it's a story for another time. And some of you are going, no, 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 you need to tell that now, right? That's a story for another time. And my heart this morning is this is a tough subject. This is a weighty subject. Uh, it's, it's an emotional subject. Uh, but it's uh, my heart this morning is that we do not repeat what I did 11 years ago. First service we skated through. Uh, hopefully we get through now that on this service. The real heart of what we're going to go after this morning, the real kind of the teaching that you'll see, uh, hopefully you walk away with, is hell is a very real place where real people go. It's not symbolic. It's not allegorical. It's not a picture of the hard life that we live here. It is a very real place, we look in the scriptures, where real people go. I want to give this precursor up front too. This can be a very scary subject. And it has been used, uh, that tactic has been used at times to literally, and I don't say this uh, irreverently, but it's at times been used to literally scare the hell out of people and push them towards heaven. Pastors have used it for that time. It's, it's scary, it's emotional because we have friends and family that have died that we're like, well, they didn't believe in Jesus. And does that really mean that's where they are? And, I, and God's a loving God. And it's a weighty subject. A very scary subject. So my goal this morning is not to scare you. My goal this morning is more than anything else that you walk out of here. My heart is a pastor. My heart is a pastor is that you walk out of here knowing that God is for you. God loves you. He's gracious. He looks down at you and says, I know you. I know the hairs you have on how many hairs you have in your head. I know the thoughts that you're thinking. I know what you did last night. I know what you're going to do next week. I am for you. I love you. I don't want you to go to this place. That's my heart this morning as we kind of unpack this. To do that, would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians. It's near the back of your Bible. If you are new to the Bible, uh, you'll find it back there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one there in the seats in front of you. It's on page 995 in that Bible. We'd also say to you, if you don't have a Bible and you're using that pew Bible, take it home with you. Uh, We'd be honored to give that to you and allow you to use that. Now, here's the trick with hell. Here's why this is a tough subject to preach on. There are not a lot of passages in Scripture with clear teaching on what it is, what it isn't, and what it's like. Most of what we understand about hell is given to us like in the Psalms and there's poetry or given to us in, in the end times, a kind of apocalyptic language of revelation. Or, or at times it's used by Jesus where Jesus talks about it, but he doesn't teach it. So he says this is kind of, he acknowledges his existence. He says kind of what it's going to be like, but he doesn't really ever teach on it. So it's kind of tough. So there are really two passages, in my opinion, that kind of step forward. If you're going to look and really begin to study, this is one of them. And then Revelation, the end of Revelation, uh, chapter 20 especially, where you really get into kind of, okay, we're going to learn about hell. Here in 2 Thessalonians, what this is, this is a letter. For those of you who may not be familiar with this, this is a letter written to a church in Thessalonica. The two in front of it is because it's the second letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul, for those of you who may not know, Paul was a guy who hated Christians. And he worked really hard to just wipe them out. And then he became a Christian himself and worked really hard to actually encourage them, the movement of the message of Jesus Christ, the planning and establishment of churches. So he's writing the letter to a church that he loves in a town of Thessalonica, uh, which is in the Middle East, the modern-day Middle East, um, up around Greece. So he's writing to this church of Thessalonica, and what the church is struggling with by, by after his first letter is these, these teachers have kind of come in and begun to teach this, this, this idea that the day of Christ has already happened. Now, for those of you who may have grown up in the church, especially children of the 80s, you might relate to this. It's kind of like, you know, when I'd come, I'd suddenly come downstairs and the house is just eerily quiet. It's like, where's mom? Where's dad? 
You know, I've got three sisters. Where are they at? Oh, my goodness, Jesus came back and I'm still here, right? That's kind of what they're dealing with in in a loose kind of sort of way. And so the church is struggling with some things that because of that belief, uh, they kind of, some of them went kind of idle, thinking, well, what does this life really matter? Others of them just kind of lived as they wanted to live. And Paul is stepping in to say, no, no, no. Listen, this is what you need to know about the end times. This is what you need to know what will happen before that time comes, and he's going to teach on it. So with that said, look at verse 7. He's kind of going to get into this uh, end time kind of discussion. It works its way through most of the book, or the letter. Verse 7, And God will provide rest for you when you are being persecuted, and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause right there. So here, first thing. He's coming. This is Jesus, mean and wild. This is not the picture of the Jesus I grew up with on my Sunday school wall, you know, holding a sheep and this gentle, kind, gracious-looking Jesus. This is Jesus coming as a warrior, coming with fire and coming to judge. And he's coming to judge those, if you see, if you see there in the later half of verse 9, and bringing judgment on those who don't know, who don't know God. Doesn't say it just says those who don't know God and who refuse to obey the good news, which is the message of Jesus. So basically he's coming to say, hey, those of you who have not acknowledged your sin, who have not just come before God and said, I can't do this thing on my own, and have put your trust in Jesus, he's coming to judge those individuals. Look at verse 9. This is what's going to happen with those who have not, who don't know God through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. They will be punished with eternal destruction. I'm going to be very upfront. This provides some difficulty for us because we see the word eternal and we see the word destruction. You're like, no, wait a minute eternal, yet destroyed. Aren't they kind of different things? We'll talk about that. So hold on to that thought. Um, So they will be punished with eternal destruction for, here's the real heart of hell, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So the real heart of hell is it's going to be a place where God is not present. And that is an ugly, hard thing to bear. Verse 10, when he comes in that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe, and this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. So if you had to sum hell up, it's a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, completely separated from the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God himself. Now, that's First Second Thessalonians. There's some other descriptors in the scriptures about hell. So let me just kind of work through them for you. I want to try and capture all the different words you may have heard, the descriptors. Uh, first one I want to go to is Mark chapter 9. This is Jesus. Remember I mentioned earlier, Jesus talks about hell, and he often uses it almost as a motivational tool, if you will. Uh, and here it is. He's talking to a group of people who were kind of hurting children, who were keeping children from coming to Jesus. And he says, listen, those of you who cause children to sin, it would be good. You might as well just hang a stone around your neck and go jump off a bridge, is what he really is kind of saying to him. And he says, anyone who causes a child to sin. Man, it is anathema. It is destruction for you. So he goes on in in Mark chapter 9 to to talk about, hey, this is what happens to those. It would be better. I mean, deal with this. This is serious. Same language is used in Matthew chapter 5. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 5, it deals with lust. 
Uh, and those of us who look out to someone who's not our spouse and begin to desire them in a way that he says, hey, listen, this is serious stuff and deal with it. Here's what he says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter eternal life with only one hand than go into, here's our description, go into what? Unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. So the kind of principle Jesus teaches, this is serious. This is an eternal issue, how you handle children, how you handle lust. It's an eternal issue. It would be better for you to deal with it severely and go into heaven maimed than to hell whole. And hell, the description, again, Jesus isn't teaching on hell. This is where this gets tricky throughout the scriptures. He's simply referencing it. And how does he reference it? Fire. Now, this is the most referenced part of hell. Most of you know hell to be this. Matthew 13, verse 50. If you want to write it down and look at it this week, it's referred to there as a furnace. Uh, it's an ugly picture. Matthew 25, 41, it's talked of as eternal fire. Uh, Luke 3, 17, there it's referenced as the fire that never ends. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 20. Again, I'll go slow so you can write some of these down. Revelation 20, verse 14. Revelation 21, verse 8. All three of them reference the, uh, the infamous, we often know of hell, as the lake of fire. Now, so it's fire, it's unquenchable fire. Jesus continues in Mark, and he continues with more descriptions of hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Now, here's a description. So again, he's, he's just kind of, he's talking about how we handle children, but he then he uses as a motivation this, this place called hell where he describes it as where the maggots, some of your translations will say worm, where the maggots never die. Second description, you don't ever, you just exist. You never die. And I love the, not love as in I appreciate it, but it's, it's more just, wow, look at his description, the maggots. I mean, it's, it's almost dehumanizing language. It's like a separation from all that is good, and, and the maggots never die, and the fire never goes out. So again, the maggot doesn't die. The next one, next description of hell you'll see, and this is another very common description, uh, and you'll see it here. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into, here's our next description, outer darkness, where there will be, in our, our next description, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So hell is one of these places where there's a fire burning all the time, but yet it's dark. How's that work? That's uh, one to leave you to talk about in your life group maybe this week or around the table with your family. Uh, but then this, so there's darkness, but then this next one, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever heard that? What does that mean? Again, that weeping and gnashing of teeth is repeated, if you want to look at it, in Matthew 13, 50, Matthew 22, 13, and Matthew 24, 51. Darkness imagery, again, is in Matthew 25, 30. We take this. What is weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, weeping, we understand. Okay, that's, that's okay. I kind of get that. Gnashing of teeth? Let me use a picture for you from the construction world that I think most of you understand. Um, put it in context of my life. I was, my wife came home with this kind of cool cabinet. And, you know, she does this all the time. I finds this incredible stuff, right? And I look at it and think, what is that? Also, she fixes it up and, and does, works her magic, and then I'm duly elected to hang it or place it or screw it to where it needs to be. And so there's this cabinet, and I, so she's away, and it's sitting there, and I know where it needs to go, so I'm going to surprise her. 
I'm the only one home. Actually, Ava's there with me. And so I think, well, and Ava's, you know, at this time, this is a few years ago, so she's small. So I, I put the cabinet where it needs to be. I lean in with all my weight to hold it in place. I figure I would just get one screw in there, and then I'll worry about leveling it. So I'm leaning with all my weight. I have the, the drill with the screw, and I'm taking this thing in, and all of a sudden it slips off the screw, and that drill right through this, part, this meaty part of my thumb here. Now, at that moment, <laughs> I was weeping and gnashing my teeth. What is gnashing your teeth? You've done it. You've ever hit your thumb with a hammer? You, what do you do? Mm, you set in. Your teeth clench. That's the gnashing of teeth. In the Greek language, not a Greek scholar, but would understand it literally means to grind your teeth in intense pain. You just set in. Ugh. Again, I don't supposed to keep words coming out or what it, it, it's some mechanism in your body that tries to deal with that pain, but that's what hell is. Continual weeping and gnashing of teeth. Final descriptor that you'll see in, in scripture a lot is this one. Revelation 9 verses 1 to 2. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. This is talking about future times. And he was given the key to the shaft, here's our next description, of the bottomless pit. Have you ever heard hell described that way? It's kind of this place, you think, well, how does that work? I mean, is, is people always falling? How does it? When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace. This captures kind of that, that fiery picture again. And the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Ugly stuff. Hell's an ugly place. It's a real place where real people go. Now, at this point, I want to kind of deviate from what I normally do week in and week out in my messages, and I want to kind of shift to more of a teaching time, if, if you allow me. And I want to do kind of a Q&A. Some of you are going, yes, we can ask questions. Not quite. <laughs> I gathered some ahead of time, and I'm going to answer five commonly asked questions about this subject. Okay, I'm going to do my very best to work through these in a way that I'll give you some tools to maybe look at them throughout the week. So that said, here we go. Five commonly asked questions. First one. This one I hear a lot. Is there a second chance? Have you ever thought about that? So, so you say, well, Adam, you're teaching that the scriptures teach that if a person doesn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that when death happens, they are judged at that point and then eternally separated from God. They never have, so there's no purgatory, there's no second opportunity, there's no, there's no other, I mean, it's just, they're done. What they, you're kidding me? Okay, so is there a second chance? That might be the question you ask. Now, my answer would be this. The answer to is no, there is no second chance. The first thing I would say is it comes from an argument of silence. You don't see it talked about any place in the scriptures. I never see it. So that's the first thing I'd say. Second thing, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. If you want to write it down and look at it this week. It's a parable, a story that Jesus teaches. He has this guy, this rich guy named Lazarus. Lazarus is, has a poor man. It lives at his gates. It was always begging for food. Well, you'd think, well, man, this guy's got it together, this, this Lazarus. Well, he dies, and he doesn't have it together. He doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. So he goes to, a, so he goes to what we believe in a story to be hell. The poor guy goes to what we believe to be more of a heaven or Abraham's bosom, as it's described, more of an Old Testament language. And then you see this discussion happen, and Jesus kind of tells the story. And in the story, it's very clear there is no second opportunity. The next passage I'd give you, say, well, Adam, I'm not sure. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Here is the, the passage. We're going to talk about this passage in a few weeks, actually, in great detail. Uh, but Revelation chapter 20 talks about the end of time. As Chris talked about last week from Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. 
Revelation 20 talks about the judgment. It basically says if your name is in the book of life, you're in. And if it is not, you're out. So again, is there a second chance? I would say the scriptures would leave that one with a no. Second question. Are people really fully conscious? So you're saying for all of eternity, there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth and this pain and this suffering and this horrid place, and they're conscious. I would say yes. You say, what passages, Adam? Okay, this week, look at Luke 16, the one I just referenced about Lazarus and the poor man. Uh, It is very clear there that he is conscious of his suffering. He is so conscious, he begs, begs for just a drop of water. Uh, So that would be the one. The second one I'd maybe look at is Revelation chapter 14, especially verse 11, where it talks about the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever and ever. It actually repeats it uh, three times. Third question, is it symbolic? Is it just a picture of something? Or is it allegorical? Or is it, you know, you hear this talk at times, and there are people, uh, even I've written a number of books today that kind of really endorse this side of hell. Now, I would say no. That's how I interpret scripture. I say it's literal. I think it means what it means, and it is what it is. However, I will, let's just hypothetically say it is symbolic. Let's just go with it for a minute. Even if that is true, what it is symbolic of is horrid, and I don't want anything to do with it. So I'll just throw that out. If, if you want to interpret scripture maybe different than I, um, even if it is a symbolic picture, it's symbolic of something that I do not want to be a part of or any of my loved ones. Next one, next question. Are there degrees of hell? So here's where this question comes from. Many of you have taken history in school, and you know of a guy named Adolf Hitler who lived in Germany, and you're saying, no, wait a minute. Adolf Hitler died, did not have a relationship with Jesus. He's in a place called hell. My 18-year-old son passes away, didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and all he did in life was smoke a little weed and tell some lies. Big deals. But compared to Adolf Hitler, you'd say, we'll give him a pass. So you're trying to tell me, you'll say, the question comes from this. You mean to tell me, Both of those individuals are handled in the same way for all of eternity. My answer to that is, this is my opinion. Again, you'll find other theologians that may disagree with this. My answer is there are degrees of hell. I really believe that. Uh, Here's where you get it. Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. Give you time to write that one down. Luke chapter 12, 47 to 48. Luke chapter 20, verse 47. Matthew chapter 11, verse 22 to 24. And if you remember Jesus' words to Pilate as he's going to the cross, and Pilate looks at him and says, it's going to be worse for them on the day of judgment than it will be for you. So Jesus understands at some capacity that there is a different degree. We also taught on this, if you want to go back online, um, our series a number of years ago, uh, maybe two years ago, is that right, Chris? Maybe two years ago, called Hand in the Cookie Jar. This was the, what was the emphasis of that series. I think you can still find that on our website. Final question, and this is the doozy. This is the big one that that people ask and wrestle with. And it's gained a lot of traction, this question, over the last, I'd say, 10, actually, since I've been out of Bible school, I've seen a lot of traction on this question. Here's the question. Is hell truly eternal? So you get what he's saying? It's a good question. So you mean to tell me a person that goes to hell is going to suffer forever and ever and ever and always. There's no end to it. My answer is yes. 
Now, I've always passionately believed that the answer to that is yes. This week, as I studied deeply, I began to have a lot of grace towards those that would tell me no. Found a guy named John Stott. Some of you know his name. And throughout his life, he uh, was reported to have held to a view. Here's what it's called, annihilationism. It's a theological term which basically Stott would have taught in his lifetime that after a person suffered for a period of time, they were annihilated, wiped out. Now, you say, well... No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Well, here's why I give grace. I believe that that is not the case, but let me kind of give you their argument. First one comes from a a kind of human philosophy. The thinking is, well, God is a just God. So if God is a just God, he would not punish someone who sinned in a finite period of time. He wouldn't then punish a finite sin with an eternal punishment. Connect that thinking? Now, my argument, my statement back is, that's, that's cool. I, I kind of get where they're going with that. I understand you want to hold to the reality of God is just. However, first thing I would say is I'm not God, and I don't think any of us can really figure him out at times. Second, so what, is, what is just and what isn't? God had some hard words to Job when trying to pontificate on that one. I would say with it that the, what they're missing in that argument is I have a soul, and my soul is not finite. My soul is eternal. So I may be sinning, yes, right now in a finite period of time, but my soul is eternal. So that's the first thing. Second argument they come with is right in 2 Thessalonians. What's the word that Paul uses? Eternal. What do you see in there? Destruction. Now, as I looked at it, Paul uses this in Philippians 3. Peter uses it in in 2 Peter chapter that we're going to look at in a minute. This word destruction shows up. You're like, what is that? Now, the word destruction in the original languages can mean literally wiped out. Or, and this is where I lean on it, I believe what it really means is if you would have a drug addict in your family, would it not be true of you to say of them, they have destroyed their life? Or have you ever walked with someone that made a really poor decision? Maybe they had an affair. Maybe they... um, Maybe they chose to steal or to murder or something. I mean, it's just what happens in their life? What things do you see spin out of control? We would say of them, they have destroyed their life. No, are you saying they're dead? No, you're just saying there's a lot of destruction in their life. So I believe that's what the writer uses. But the greater way to answer it is Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says this, and they will go away into eternal punishment, Hang on to that thought and look at the rest of it. But the righteous will go where? Into eternal life. So I'd say this. Here's a struggle with annihilationism. Anyone I've ever talked to that holds to annihilationism or read about will tell me they believe eternal life, the eternal and the word life, to link up beautifully. We'll hold to that. Well, if you believe to life being eternal, why don't you believe the opposite being eternal as well? Does that make sense? Kind of grab that, kind of hold with that. So there are the questions. Now, you may have others. And if you do, you just watch Chris get ordained, right? So he has all the answers now. <laughs> so I know he's going away on a trip. He tried to pull that card for a service, try to stand up here and say, well, I'm going away on a trip, so send a question. He'll get back to it when he'll get back to you when he gets back. Send him an email. He'll jump on as soon as he gets back. <laughs> In all seriousness, um, I was, uh, I'll joke you aside. If you have other questions, this is a tough subject. It's serious. It's heavy. Um, shoot us an email. We'd love to talk with you. Give us a call. We'd love to, love to wrestle it out with you um, and, and truly look at the text and what they have to say. 
Well, that said, let me land the plane. Here's the one I want to land with. Second Peter chapter 3 comes along. And in the early church, Jesus was repeatedly, they had all this thought that he's coming back and it's going to happen. The day of the Lord is coming soon. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. Back then, they were struggling, where, where is this going to happen? Now, today, all the more we may struggle. So Peter steps in and answers the question. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. So God, here's a simple teaching of God. God is not bound up in, in finite time. He is eternal. He is outside of time. It's hard for us to get our head around because we don't live like that. So a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise. In other words, Peter's kind of rebuking. He says, listen, his promise is legit. He's coming back, and he's not slow as some people think. No, he is being patient for, for whose sake? For your sake. Why? Because he loves you. He's not a big meanie in the sky who wants a sign. Look at what continue reading. He does not want anyone to be, and here's our word again. This is where annihilationism, this is one of the verses they'll use. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to what? To say. God says, I'm not slow. I'm not going to rush this thing, though, because I'm for you. I want you to repent. Now, repentance is a big deal. John the Baptist came before Jesus and preached it. Jesus preached it. The disciples preached it. What is repentance? What does it mean? So words sometimes we get all mixed up. And here's what I find. Sometimes people taking this definition. Repentance means to change. Repentance means to do good. I'd say no. That's not repentance. Matter of fact, I would borrow Brian Chaffel, who's a, a seminary president out in the Midwest. He says it this. At times, what we consider repentance may simply be a good work that we are trying to offer God as a way of brokering our pardon. Hear what he's saying? A lot of times what we think about repentance is saying, okay, God, yeah, I did this. I'm going to step over here and I'm going to work really hard now for you to make you happy. No, you cannot please God without him intervening in your behalf. So repentance is, yes, repentance means to turn. It does. It means that. And repentance will lead to change. I believe that with all my heart. But repentance is not a changed life. It's not turning from one category of works to another. Repentance is saying, they're looking over here and saying, God's saying, listen, Adam, I am life. I have come to give you life. I will fulfill you and sustain you and keep you. But so often we look over here to all the other stuff, a good marriage, a good home, a good job, all the other stuff we brought, all our life and identity wrapped up in, and God is saying, turn from that. Turn from your good works. Turn from your sin and turn to me as the author and sustainer of life. That's repentance. Matter of fact, here's how I would say it. Repentance is, if you want a simple definition, this is the Adam Nagel definition. Repentance is felt sorrow. That's what I believe repentance is. Repentance is not a statement about your future, but it's a statement of your personal past. It's not looking forward as much as it's saying, man, I, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I get it. Repentance isn't even, repentance isn't even turning away from the ugliness of sin as much as it is turning to the beauty of Jesus. It's turning around and saying, God, I've, I've hungered for so much that's not you. And I'm coming to you now. I'm turning in my mind towards you. And here's the deal. When we do this, the past resolved gives the present its only chance of change. 
Yeah, you want to change, but you've got to resolve something back here first, and that's repentance, felt sorrow. Now, what does it say in the text when you repent? Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. John 3.16, many of you know it well. You've seen it at football games over the years and sports events, or you've probably one of the first verses you may have memorized if you've ever memorized Scripture. For God so loved the what? That he sent his only son. He doesn't want you to perish. He had great cost. He sent his son. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, Jesus, should have eternal life. The verse continues. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but he came in the world to save the world. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He looks at you and says, you're a sinner. You cannot fix it yourself. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You cannot clean it up on the outside. You must repent. You must acknowledge and turn to your creator. As you think about this, those of you who in this room who would say, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a Christian, do you want God to come back soon? You hunger for that day? Would you like to avoid death like Chris talked about last week? Do you know how you do it? You want Jesus back now? Do you know how you do it? What's this passage say you need to do? Get out there and share Jesus. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your wife, your husband, your kids, your coworker, your classmates, your friends, your bus driver. Talk to them about Jesus. And you're going to speed up Christ's return. Get out to the far reaches of the world in Romania and India and and just get the gospel out there. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the mid-1800s, my favorite uh, guy in church history, here's a quote from him on on this, this verse. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Get out there and get busy. Final thing I'll say is to those in this room who do not know Jesus. At times the question gets asked, how can a loving God send people to hell? You may wrestle with that. It's a, it's a, it's a fair question. To Adam, you're telling me God's loving, but yet he has this place called hell. And a lot of times what we do in that, the people that kind of wrestle with it, a lot of times what we begin to do is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And they'll begin to minimize hell. They'll kind of downplay it. God's really loving. Love wins, Right? Well, guess what? When we begin to do that, what ends up happening, when we minimize the reality of hell, we actually malign the mercies and the love of God. You say, how's that work? Because the reality of hell, when we really key on it, the fact that hell exists, also the other reality that exists is it's escapable. You don't have to go there. That's God's love. You know, the reality of hell is that God's wrath has to be satisfied, and it was satisfied on a person named Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who hung on a cross where Deuteronomy says, it is cursed, the man who hangs on a tree. Nails were driven through his wrist and through his feet. It says in Colossians, our sin was nailed to that cross. It says in Corinthians, that listen, he became sin for us who bore no sin so that we could become righteous and good. Wrath was poured out. Jesus looks to the Father from the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why he says it? You know why he says it? Because God is plenty clear, sin cannot enter his presence. 
So if you're going to enter the presence of your God, your creator, the one who is for you and knows you, the one who knows your thoughts and your fears and your anxieties, he's saying, come to me and find rest. If you want to enter his presence, you've got to simply stop and say, I can't do it without help. I need Jesus. I put my trust in him. I repent of my sin. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when I do that, I put my trust in Jesus. It says he takes my sin and I get his righteousness and I walk in to the presence of God. And one of my favorite descriptions of God is I get to come home. Peter writes that. So here's what I want to do. I want to end in a way that I don't always end. I get asked this. I've never done this at Bethany. I want to do it this morning. I want to actually invite those of you who don't know Jesus to this morning, place your faith in Jesus and avoid this place called hell. So what I'd like you all to do is just everyone close your, kind of bow your head and close your eyes, if you will. What I'd like to do, and people say at times, well, how do I do this, Adam? How do I avoid this place? How do I get into this relationship with God? Well, let me lead you in a prayer. Okay, these are my words. You put them in your own words. Again, just the privacy of where you're sitting right now. It goes something like this. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. So again, in your own language, just stop and confess your sin to God. God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. Then pray about Jesus. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I believe that in my heart. So go ahead and pray that. Put it in your own words. Then here's the key part. Here's where faith comes in. You hear a lot of times about faith and a Christian. What is faith? What is faith, Adam? Well, here it is. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord. There's a key thing I put in here. I want because you know what? You may not believe, but the prayer, I love the prayer of a man who comes to Jesus is, I, I believe, help my unbelief. You don't have it all figured out. All you're saying is, God, I want to trust you, value you, walk in your direction as my savior. And I want to follow you as Lord. So put that in your own words and pray that to God. And then wrap up by saying, God, guide my life and help me to do your will. What I'd like to do, again, all heads bowed and all eyes closed. I want to ask you, if you've prayed that prayer this morning, would you be bold enough without anyone looking just to put your hand up just so I can just acknowledge, hey, Adam, I'm moving from death to life. I've put my faith in Jesus. I've put my trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive me. Would you just slip your hand up and hold it up for me? Thank you. I see them. Put them down now. Thank you so much. Can I say right now, if those of you put your hand up, maybe some of you that didn't put your hand up, that, that maybe a little afraid, God is for you. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, you put your faith in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You are his child. He is for you. Let me pray for us all. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. God, the realities of hell, it is scary. It is ugly. It is hard. But it's real. Thank you. God, I just thank you. 
I was yet a sinner. Me, Adam Nagel, I was a sinner. You died for me. God, I deserve that horrid place. But you knew I couldn't help myself and you moved in my direction. God, thank you for opening my eyes to your grace and your mercy. And may I never graduate from that beautiful reality of Jesus. God, keep the gospel fresh in my heart and in every person's room as a Christian, would it stay fresh in their heart? And God, help us, those in this room that are Christians, help us to be bold and courageous with this message. God, for those this morning who walked from death to life, God, we celebrate that. I celebrate that. The angels in heaven are celebrating. There's a party going on right now. God, thank you for their willingness to move towards you. God, now strengthen them up and help us as a church, help them walk and mature in that relationship. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for conquering sin and death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.